Welcome to Shit You Don't Want to Talk About. Before listening to today's episode, please be advised some content may include discussion around topics that are difficult to hear, especially for children under the age of 13. We want to encourage you to care for yourself, security, and well-being. Resources of each episode will be listed in the episode description and on the website shittotalkabout.com. Paul, welcome to the podcast. What shit do you want to talk about today? Yeah, well, uh, my name is Paul. I am a, a mindset coach, hypnotist, and a healer. And I am happy to talk about anything because I've got over the stage now of feelings of regret and guilt and shame and all those kind of things. And the stuff we're going to talk about today, to me, is really, really important that more people start to talk about it so that it doesn't become a stigma, so that it helps people, you know, to to get over it themselves, to realize they're not the only one to have suffered with X, Y, or Z. You know, I mean, see, death, divorce, depression, and there was another one as well, which I can't remember. I've been through all of them, yeah? And I've come out the other side and I'm smiling. Life goes on. And that really, to me, is the whole point of it. You know, wherever you're in right now, that situation is temporary and you will get through it. Now, it might take a minute, it might take a day, it might take 10 years, but there's always an ending. There's always a way to to make changes and to look for the positive out of some of the most horrible things that have happened. And I completely agree. And thank you for that. And one thing that I was thinking about since last time we spoke, because uh, to the listeners, I asked Paul about tarot and uh, many other questions about healing and it's just so fascinating to me. How did you end up getting into that world? Were you always in that world? Did you grow up there? Like how, how does one even start off going into that? And oh. what is it in more detail? Okay. So, um, my growing up was pretty much, you know, working class, normal way of doing things. Dad went to work. Mum had a part-time job. Um, I didn't have a brilliant childhood. I was very sickly. I had um, asthma. But when I was a kid, it was undiagnosed. It was just called like a wheezy chest. So you know the movies where the kids are choosing teams. You've got two captains and they're picking the team. There's always one kid right at the end that neither side wants. Yeah? That was always me. I was always the one neither side wanted. Um, And that felt horrible, you know. Um, my dad was a man of color and in where I lived at the time, there were very few people of color around. So I got stigmatized. I got called all kinds of names, got bullied and, and all, all the rest of it. And it was a very challenging childhood. Not a lot of smiles around that I can remember. Um, and I got determined to get out of there and change that whole perspective and to do different things. So I left school at 15. I didn't go to college. I went into the army for a couple of years. I spent the 80s traveling around Europe, you know, doing lots and lots of kind of part-time jobs, building things, knocking things down, moving stuff from A to B and back again and helping people do all kinds of things, summer jobs by the beach, winter jobs at ski resorts, that kind of stuff. And I had a fabulous time. Uh, Met someone, came back to the UK in 88. And then in 92, I joined a company called the Channel Tunnel which is a railway link under the sea between the UK and continental Europe. And it's like two railway tunnels and like a middle tunnel in the, for the service vehicles and rescue vehicles, that kind of thing. I was there for 25 years. And in 1997, wow. 
I decided that 25 years was a really good time to end things and to move forward. Now, to be perfectly honest with you, it was, it came from the fact that I thought, you know, I wasn't going to move any further up in the hierarchy. I wasn't particularly in, enamored. I wasn't really in love with the job I was doing at the time. And I just thought to myself, look, Paul, you've got a choice. You can either stay here and be miserable and probably make most of the people around you miserable for the next 5, 10, 15, God knows how many years, or you can take a leap of faith, jump into the dark and see what happens. And that's what I did. So on the exact date of my 25th anniversary, I left the Channel Tunnel and went into the unknown. I was going to become a photographer, but I spoke to some professional photographers and they kind of very quickly said, don't bother. Because nowadays, everybody, one of these things, yeah, calls himself photographer and the, the floor, the bottom, they kind of dropped out of that market. And they said, unless you want to turn your hobby into something you absolutely hate, and it becomes a grind and a slog, don't do it. So I thought about that. I went, you know what? They're right. I love photography. I love taking photographs. I don't want it to become something that I don't enjoy doing. So I thought, okay, well, bin that idea. Let's think of something else. And at the time, I'd, I was going through a lot of changes. I'd taken a personal trainer. I'd dropped a lot of fat, put on some muscle. I did a social dynamics course. I did a stand-up comedy course. I did all kinds of things. And then I did a one-day trial for a hypnosis training and really enjoyed it. I went this lady that had a fear of, um, you know, snakes and worms and things that wriggled and crawled about the floor. And we got a really good result. And at the end of the day, I thought, yeah, that was okay. But things changed the very next day because she sent me a, a video. And basically every Sunday morning, this lady and her family went for a walk in some local woods. And dad, you know, the husband was always videoing things. And, you know, because that's what he was into. Anyway, long story short, they're walking along. Dad goes to the lady, careful, darling, you better walk around here because there's a big worm on the floor. And she goes, no, 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 it's okay, darling. And she gets her hands and knees very, very carefully, very gently scoops up this worm in her hands, carries it over to a grassy bank, drops it on the grassy bank. Now, husband launches a stream of expletives because he can't believe what he's seen and nearly drops the phone. And I'm going, wow, I've got a superpower. So I went back to the guy that trained me, found out who trained him and went as far as I could up the ladder and bought all the books, all the courses and really just fell in love with with hypnosis, because I then recognized I'd always had a fascination with the mind and mesmerism, that TV show, The Mentalist, and all that kind of stuff. And it really just kind of all coalesced, yeah, out of nowhere, essentially. And so I became a hypnotherapist. I was helping people with everything from alcohol problems, uh, losing weight, stopping smoking, stress, anxiety, all that kind of stuff. But then I realized over a short period of time that I was only treating helping a person with one tiny aspect of their life. And I really wanted to help the whole person. So I figured out the best way to do that would be to come out like a mindset coach, which is the way I see it is I'm helping people change everything up here, changing their, their outlook on life, going from a closed mindset, a negative point of view of the world to a, a growth mindset or an open mindset and helping them basically look at their whole lives and find out what they really want to do and help them to get there. And that's what I've been doing. And so I kind of kept the hypnosis skill along with me. I learned some uh, healing skills as well. And then during lockdown back in 2020, 
I was looking for something to do because, you know, lockdown was really serious in the UK. We couldn't even go out of the house, all that kind of stuff. And I found uh, this. It's going to be back to front, but it's a tarot card, yeah? And I discovered tarot. Oh, cool. And um, this is from the Druidcraft tarot, which is like a pagan tarot set. And I found this guy online doing a really kind of, it was there was no kind of mystical mystery woo woo kind of stuff. It's very practical course. So I did that and taught myself tarot and really really enjoyed it. And the idea is, once I've got a bit more experience, is that I will bring in the tarot into my coaching to help people get different insights into various things aspects of the life. There is so many questions and go thoughts ask from... ask away ask away. <laughs> I, uh, and this is something that we didn't cover in the intro call, and that's one of the many reasons I love the intro calls is I get a little glimpse to make sure that we get along. And I had no idea that you worked for the tunnel. What did you call it? The It's called uh, the, the channel tunnel. The channel tunnel. I didn't know that you worked there and for so long. So when did you start working there and when was your 25th anniversary? Okay, so I joined in 1992. Construction work started in 88. So when I joined, it, it wasn't open. They were still kind of building the thing. And it actually opened for business on May the 4th or 5th, 1994. And what it is, it, you drive your train or your truck. Sorry, you drive your car or your truck onto a train and then that takes you to France, to a place called just outside of Calais, and back again. And there are also passenger trains that run from London to Paris, from London to, to Belgium. And in the winter, they run a service once a week down to the ski resorts in the south of France. And I was oh, there for 25 so years. Cool. So, yeah, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant thing. You, you get, you're in London, you get on a train, two and a half hours later, or two and a bit hours later, you're in the Gardenau in central Paris. Absolutely brilliant. It's a great service. I love it. Uh, so for the first, what, seven years, I worked in the control room. The control room is where we kind of move all the trains around and look after all the ancillary equipment, you know, the, the, the drainage, the power, the, the lighting, all that kind of stuff. Then I became a duty manager, so it's kind of like my railway for my shift. I was in charge of most of it. And then it's a bit of health and safety, but the most interesting, most fun job that I had, most worthwhile or fulfilling job, was I became the, what you would call, the emergency preparedness manager. So I worked with the emergency services, you know, like the 911s and the fire and ambulance, that kind of thing, on both sides of the English Channel and the local authorities and the military. And our job was to look at what could go wrong and then how to reduce the consequences if stuff did go on. So to give you an example, every year we would shut the system down for one night and run through um, disaster scenarios, you know, fires, floods, terrorism attacks, all kinds of things. So to give you an example, in 2012, just before the Olympics, we ran an exercise with special forces from France and the UK, put a Eurostar, one of these passenger trains, underground, split it in half and let, you know, had terrorists on board and passengers and, you know, there's lots of screaming and shouting, lots of shooting. Then the special forces come in, do their thing, do the searches. And it was a brilliant exercise, really, really interesting exercise. 
but we'd also do, you know, like uh, collisions and derailments and all kinds of stuff. And from that exercise, we'd do a debrief to figure out any learning points so that we could actually put those into the process and procedures for when such an event hopefully doesn't occur. But you've always got to be prepared. And I love that job, a really, really good job. Then in 2015, my job was amalgamated with another role. It went to a friend of mine, and I was transferred over to look after property services. So things like the, the catering contracts, looking after cars, mobile phones, that kind of thing. And worked with really, really cool people, but I preferred to be operational, kind of front lines, and this really wasn't. It was a different environment. For me. But I gave it my best shot. And then in October 2017, I got knocked off my bicycle work on the way to work because I didn't drive. I, I mean, I drive. I have a license. But I used to cycle to work because it's literally only 20 minutes. And I broke um, a bone just below my right elbow and just above my right elbow. So I was off work for six weeks. And this, because I couldn't do anything because I'm, I'm a right-handed person. It just gave me time to think about what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And it's really funny because at the end of that six weeks, I went back to work still undecided. And I was like trying to get in my office, wading through all the piles of mail, trying to get the computer going on, just like you would come back on vacation. And then the head of HR walked past my door and he went, hi, Paul, how's the arm? And I went, hi, Nick, have you got a minute? And I've got no idea where that came from. And I went to see him and literally about four or five weeks later on the exact date, December the 1st, 2017, I was out. That is, that is powerful in the fact that uh, it took me also surgery uh, in time off of work to be able to realize I really needed to quit my job. I, to, to relate a little bit and I've had, I have a cyst on my, the right side of my head and it's a, little bigger than the size of a golf ball. And I, uh, I've always had headaches there. I've had it since I was a kid. Like my parents knew about it, but in 2020, I was getting such bad migraines that the only thing that would work to be able to help it was put pressure on it. And I would have to wrap a bandana around my head or a scarf and it would actually cut off the circulation on the rest of my head. So it wasn't good. Or I would lay down and try to stack books on it to try to get the pressure. And I, yeah, I saw a surgeon and he was like, yeah, we have to do surgery. And so in November, November 2nd, 2020, I had my craniotomy and the podcast is launching or did launch, <laughs> mattering on when this airs on November 2nd, exactly one year from my craniotomy. And to me, it's, it's so powerful when basically life causes you to put your everything on pause to get you to think about what you really want. And not that we ever necessarily want it to happen. It's not like you wanted to break your arm or I wanted to have brain surgery, but it really makes you think about what your next steps were. Was there anything you did when you're during your six weeks off that kind of started this or the mind shift changed? Did that happen during the six weeks that you didn't anything you remember consciously doing? That's a really good question, Jen, because at the time, I thought this idea of making a change was brand new. 
But on reflection, particularly a few weeks ago, I was thinking about things and it came to me that for quite a few years before this event happened, I'd been thinking to myself subconsciously that 25 was a good number to leave on. Yeah, like 25 years, that's a quarter of a century. So in my mind, 25, not 23, not 22, not 24, but 25 was a nice round figure, a quarter of a century to save work somewhere. And at the time this happened, I didn't know that. It's just I was sitting there and I was thinking, God, you know, literally for six weeks, it was pretty much, do I stay? Do I go? Do I stay? Do I go? Do I stay? And it's a pretty boring conversation, I can tell you. And I just couldn't make my mind up because I was looking at the risks of leaving because, you know, at the time I was 57, I had no kind of second career. I have no real great list of qualifications. I don't have a degree. So getting another job was going to be a major challenge if this thing that I was going to start didn't work. But if I stayed, what, what would I miss out on? And in the, what, four years now since I've quit, I've had the most incredible experiences. I've, I've met some brilliant, brilliant people. I've done some incredible things like the stand-up comedy course I've mentioned. I've, you know, started the podcast. I've talked to so many people that I would never have met if I hadn't taken that decision. And I have got some fabulous memories. I've been able to help lots of people as well. And none of this would have happened if I had stayed at work. And the interesting thing is, in hindsight, is that with um, you know lockdown and all that happening, I may have been furloughed on you know eight percent of my salary, and I'd have been sat at home doing nothing because you weren't in the UK. You weren't allowed to kind of go and work if you were furloughed. You just had to kind of just sit at home. And I don't know how I would have coped with that, not being able to do things as well as not being allowed to go out. Whereas for me now, during COVID, because I see all of my clients online, and this has been going on since 2019, it wasn't an issue. It's kind of business as usual for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that's a, an interesting kind of review backwards. But yeah, to be honest with you, not an awful lot went on during that six weeks that I was off work. And it's only kind of looking back at it that it hit me that I'd been thinking about leaving after 25 years anyway. That and I love how it's different for all of us too. In that you you thought back on it and you're like, oh, I kind of did, kind of didn't uh, think of that. And one, okay, how? Oh, there's like seven questions all at the same time. So we're working on choosing one. When you started going through and you saw the hypnotherapy and you saw you did your. Uh, comedy and what what got you down that course after you quit and made you go okay I actually want to go start changing my lifestyle or I'm curious about this let me go check it out like what because I know for myself and this is a question I get asked a lot so that way you know kind of what I'm I, I want to get to and uh, is so many people ask me well how do you change your mindset and for myself, that's something I, I struggle with answering in the fact that I, I used to be, you know, quite overweight, very depressed. I have a, a 
quite the background as well. And it took me years and years and years to do very small steps, but I honestly can't say what that initial step was that got me to change. And so I'm asking everybody else to see, you know, how do we help people with that and what, what got each of us to change? Cause it's always so different. Don't wait for something to happen. Don't wait to fall off your bicycle or have a car crash or need surgery to make changes. If you're not happy with the way things are right now and you know you're not happy and you want to do something different, then it starts with something really simple but very important. You make a decision. You decide that you're not happy where you are now and you want to change things up. And then once you've made that decision, you've got to kind of sit down and look at things and go, okay, right, I've made this decision. How do I make the changes? What do I need to do? What do I need to learn? Who do I need to talk to? You know, and start making notes, start writing lists, start doing, start taking action. Because yes, the decision is important, but if you just sit there having made the decision, you've got to start taking action. Now in 2018, once I decided that I didn't want to be a photographer for the reason I've already explained. I didn't have a clue what I was going to do. I didn't want to go in a job because I'd spent 25 years doing that. I wanted something different. So I knew I wanted to work for myself, but I didn't know what to do. So I thought to myself, the only way I'm going to find something is by being open to opportunities and just throwing myself out there. Now, Jen, a lot of people talk about stepping out of your comfort zone. And I disagree with this because there's a door behind you. If you step out of that door, you're moving into another room and leaving behind the stuff in this room where you are now. And if you come back into the room, you're leaving the stuff in the other room. And it's like with your comfort zone, if you step out of your comfort zone, go do something and then step back in again, that thing you brought back with you is you've left it behind. So the way I look at things is you expand your comfort zone and so by doing the stand-up comedy for example i was expanding my comfort zone learning new skills and testing myself to see what i was capable of because the course that i did was in central london with a guy called logan murray who's been on tv he writes for films and tv and theater and all that kind of stuff works with lots of word big big names and we did this 13-week course you know five six hours every saturday and we did some really bizarre exercises to learn what comedy was and, and how to be funny and how to write funny, how to turn ordinary stories, and all this kind of stuff. But in the end, to graduate, we had to do a live gig in front of strangers on a stage in a pub in central London. The pub was actually called the Water Rats, the band Oasis. Yeah, They did their first London gig in this same pub. And it's literally about so 10 funny. minutes walk from a big station called um, St Pancras, which is a bit like Grand Central. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And step, it was only a five-minute set. It was only a five-minute set. Now, I tell you, you think five minutes, that's nothing. But when you've got to write material for five minutes and stand on that stage, that, it takes a lot of time. Anyway, so we, we all took it. There's about 14 or 15 of us on this course, and I was about midway through. And uh, Logan got on the stage, did the introduction, and I was really, really nervous 
because all these people were kind of sitting there. I didn't know any of them apart from my crew that we're doing the course with. And some of them had got lots of laughs, some of them got virtually no laughs. I'm thinking, do I really want to do this? And the day before, we'd done like an extra day's training, and my kind of script had been ripped to shreds by Logan. And I, at one stage, I thought, you know what? I'm not going to turn up on Sunday night. I've got nothing. I've got no material. I'm just not going to do it. And I had a chat with some of the, the other gang, and they said, no, just use the old stuff you do, because that, was, that works. And all day Saturday after the course and all day Saturday morning, Sunday morning, I'm thinking, yeah, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So I got out of the old material, jigged it around a little bit, went up, went to the place, got on the stage. And as soon as I put my foot on the stage, something changed. Seeing the, the big bright light shining in my face, turning the audience dark so I could just see kind of silhouettes. And it was weird because I just started and just did my set. And I got a couple of hecklers, which was brilliant because the hecklers were kind of were, were going at me and that created some interaction and that got the audience going and it turned what could have been a, 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 an okay kind of five minutes to a really, really good five minutes because the hecklers saved me to a certain extent. I was able to interact with them I got a really good thing going. I loved it. It was great fun. Now, I, the intention wasn't to become a stand-up comedian because that just takes years and years and years, and, and I didn't want that. It was just basically to push myself to expand my limits of what I know I can do. And now I'm not afraid to do podcasts. I'm not afraid to go live. I stand up in front of a real audience, and, which I've done a few times. Um, just prior to uh, COVID kicking off. And I love it. I love being on stage. So maybe part of me wanted to be an actor. Yeah, because I, I really do enjoy it. And I do like, you know, performing. Because basically when we're doing this kind of thing, we are we are putting ourselves out there and sharing stories and telling stories. And I really, really enjoy it. And so, yeah, you've just got to make the decision and you have to take action. Even if it's scary, because scary is good. Scary is good. They they did some studies a few years back, and they looked at fear and excitement. And when you look at the physical reactions in your body, they're pretty much the same. You know, um, Bruce Springsteen did an interview. I've mentioned this before. Bruce Springsteen did an interview years ago for one of the music magazines. They said, "Ah, oh, Bruce, how do you know you're ready to go on stage? And he looks at the guy and he went, you know what? My palms get sweaty. My heart starts beating faster. I can't keep still. My breathing gets shorter. Then I know I'm ready to go on stage. They talked to a lady called Carly Simon, a country singer, a folk singer from years back, asked her the same kind of question. She went, well, you know, my, my palms get sweaty. Uh, my heartbeat raced. I get really, really short of breath. And, and, and I just know I'm going to have a panic attack and I can't go on stage. She cancelled so many shows because she couldn't get on stage. But when you listen and you read what they say, the symptoms are pretty much identical. So if a thought of doing something is scary, just switch it and think, actually, I'm not scared. I'm excited. And get excited about it. Uh it's, just a it's just a little trick. Yeah, to kind of trick your mind into switching from one set to a different set of beliefs and behaviors because when you're excited you actually want to do the thing like a roller coaster 
Yeah. People go on a roller coaster because <laughs> they want to be scared. Yeah. They want that feeling yeah. of the heart pounding and the sweaty palms and the, oh my God, look at that drop and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. It's the same thing. I, I, I would say that, uh, and I don't, you're a podcast host, so I don't know if this happens to you as well. Every time before I do an interview or those intro calls that I had, I get really flustered around the house. Like I can have all the time in the world, all the time in the world to get like to the podcast on time to do the interview. And then I, for some reason, the last like 20 minutes before the, like I'm supposed to be, you know, starting the interview, I am like running around the house. Like everything is broken. I am freaking out. I am literally almost to tears by the time I start an interview. And then as soon as we start recording and we're on, I'm just like, oh, okay, this is great. We're fine. This is going to be wonderful. And everything's at ease. Yet I can so relate to that panic attack feeling because I go through that every single time. That is so funny, Jen, because it's kind of the same with me. Like today, for example, I'm drinking water, but I planned to make a cup of coffee before I came on. Yeah? But uh, I, I have to keep myself busy because otherwise I get flustered. And if I'm thinking, oh, what am I going to talk about? What am I going to say? How am I going to say? Have I got the shirt right? So I just have to keep myself busy. So literally 15 minutes before this recording started, I did a live on LinkedIn. I wrote a post and I did some other stuff. And I ran out of time to go get myself a coffee. So hence, I, I just grabbed some water because I looked at my clock and went, oh, my God, it, it's, uh, what was it, 1.58. I'm going to go live. You're going to re start recording in two minutes' time. And so I just quickly ran to the kitchen and grabbed a glass of water. <laughs> and that's so funny. I uh, I have a, a very large water glass that I use uh, to make sure I hydrate enough. And it's just so big. It Like if I need a sip of water, it takes up the entire frame. <laughs> so I was planning on getting a smaller glass and I didn't have time like in the fluster that I have. I was like, but I have my teacup, which is a giant teacup. It's just water in here. That's all. There's water in my teacup because I was like, it's better than my giant <laughs> So I am very grateful. Thank you for sharing that. I am not the only one that goes through that right before a interview. <laughs> no, you're not. And if you talk I, to I will... anybody. Sorry, go on. Go, go ahead. I was just going to say, if you talk to anybody that goes on stage regularly, you will still hear. It's like footballers, yeah? They all have these little habits, these little traditions to, to when they get ready, like they put their right sock on first or their left shoe on first. And a lot of people have had like a rabbit's foot or they'll, they'll touch the curtain a certain way before they go on stage, little rituals to make, to get, again, it's about mindset. It's to get their mind right. Okay, we're going on stage now. Got to get ready. And so what you and I have just described, you could say they are rituals to get our mind in the right place to do the recording. And it so is. And that's also something that I wanted to follow up on of digging in a little deeper from some of the items that we pulled from the intro call of you mentioned that you were married at one point and 
I would say a, a, a piece that I know that I went through is I didn't think that when I went through a divorce or different items in my life that what would be possible to know that I could change my life. Because I understand how you said that it's making the choice and the decision to change yet, and then doing the how afterwards, yet I know for a very, very long time I was stuck, even knowing that the change was possible to make that decision. And when like going through uh, getting married and divorced and family and life, how could you tell us a little bit about your experience there and how you felt you know, you finally saw a possibility to make that change. Yeah. One thing I want to say, though, is that when we get stuck, we know we're not happy. I personally believe that it's because we're not ready to make that decision. It's because we don't know what's on the other side of that decision. It's the unknown leap into the darkness. Yeah. If I get divorced, what happens? If I quit my job, what happens? If I do this, what happens? It's the unknown. And I think that's why a lot of people actually get stuck because on my own podcast, I've spoken to several uh, women who've been in really horrendous relationships, sometimes more than one relationship, yeah? Mm -hmm. And they kind of get stuck into this thing. And it's only when they go, you know what? I've had enough. I cannot take one more minute being with this person. And that kind of stimulates them into then making the decision to just walk out the house with a kid in each hand and a bag, and that's it. With my um, situation, we'd been together for a long time, and, you know, as it happens, the kids came along. And I'll be perfectly honest with you, I kind of felt like I was being pushed to the back of the queue for attention. And we found it very, very difficult to talk about things. We, we try to have conversations and they would just end up with us, you know, locking horns like two bull horns or two bulls in a field, yeah, and just really going at it. Um, we just couldn't kind of seem to work around that. Uh, for about two years before I moved out the house, I was sleeping on the sofa because we, we just were oh, not wow. communicating. Now, I want to be really clear here. It takes two to tango and it was 50-50. I, I made an effort to communicate and then I gave up because I couldn't find a way to make it work. Maybe if I'd made more of an effort, I could have found a way to make it work and I wouldn't be divorced right now, but I didn't. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I've got to put my hands up to that because that's what happens sometimes. But also having said that, I believe my mind was saying, look, Paul, this is going nowhere. It is time to move on. And that's what I did. You know, I... I made the decision that despite all the disadvantages that were going to happen when I moved out of the house, kind of all the trouble and the hurt it was going to cause, I had to think about myself and my future and my own personal well-being. Now, that sounds incredibly selfish, but sometimes you have to be selfish. Too many people get stuck in relationships for so long because they think, no, 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 no. I've got to put all these other people first, Yeah. I've got to stay until the kids are, are this age or that age or the other age. I've got to stay for this reason or that reason. And they're miserable. They spend the next 10, 20, 30, sometimes 40 years being miserable. I've spoken mm -hmm. to people that have been in marriages for 40 plus years. And then the, one of the partners dies 
and they say it's a relief. I've spent this, the fast past forty years in purgatory, but I thought I had to stay for the oh, kids, no. and then I had to stay because of this, and I had to stay because of that, and because they're of a certain age where you just didn't do things like get divorced. You had to, you know, being very British, you had to kind of like be very stoic about things and just put up with your struggles. Now, thankfully, that attitude is changing now, but it's still out there. And a lot of people maybe listening or watching this podcast now might be in that situation. Well, the thing is, if you're not happy, I know it's not easy. I know you say you've got to make a decision, and sometimes you don't want to make that decision for various reasons, but you have to for your own sanity, for your own health, and also to a certain extent for the health of your kids as well, because if kids know stuff you don't know, I don't know how this works, but, you know, they, we can pick up vibes off each other. And even if you're mm -hmm. pretending to be happy, the kids know you're not. So what lesson are you teaching your kids? That you're staying in something, yeah? You're being the martyr to the cause. Because when you go to heaven, God will go, oh, my God, Paul, you were wonderful. You stayed all that time suffering in that relationship. No, it's not going to happen. We're not here to be miserable. We're here to be happy and do the best we can. So... You have to make the decision. And I made that decision. Mm -hmm. And in June 2012, I, I moved out of the house. I still stayed in contact with the kids. I still paid maintenance and all that kind of stuff, you know, did what was necessary. And then I got divorced. And that was like nine and a half years almost since. But, you know, do I regret it? No. Could I have still been in a relationship? Yes. Would I have enjoyed that situation? No. Would my kids have enjoyed it? Would my ex-wife enjoy it? Highly unlikely. Because it wasn't working. And when it's when it's broke, you try and fix it and it doesn't get fixed, you know, you, you've got to start again. You've got to rebuild. And that's a terrifying thing to do, to, to rebuild, especially I know that I've done it in past relationships and so many people that they don't feel whole without another person there mm. and how could they live their life without another oh. person or feeling needed? That is so wrong. You people have <laughs> to, it is, it's so wrong. You have to stop this belief that you're not a whole if you don't have a partner or a husband or a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. That's garbage, yeah? A person, a partner brings extra brings additional mm -hmm. stuff, yeah? You are a whole person, yeah? You have everything you need. That's how we're built. We are built to be dependent up until a certain age, and then we become independent and go out into the world. Yeah, have relationships, get married, all that, great. But don't be dependent, thinking that there's part of you is missing because you haven't got one uh, partner. Yeah? That's rubbish. You have everything you need to be a great person inside you. Having a partnership brings extra stuff. Like when you order a pizza, do they say, do you want extra toppings? You know, do you want some of this and some of that? Some pineapple. You should never put pineapple pizza, by the way. Do you want some pineapple or jalapenos or whatever? You know, the pizza is still there, but they're putting <laughs> extra stuff on. And that's what a relationship is. You'll does. still be a whole pizza. You still be a whole pizza until you take a bite out of it. But you get what I'm saying. You've got to stop depending on other people to bring you happiness. The only person that makes you happy is you. 
I can demonstrate this right now. Okay, Jed, look. Sit up straight, shoulders back, yeah? Drop your shoulders down. Now, what I want you to do is think of a really, really happy memory, a really funny memory. Think of something, okay. yeah? Picture that in your mind and make it really big and bright. Think of the funniest thing, the happiest memory ever. Make it funnier, make it happier. Okay. Make it, see, you, you know, you, can't, you can start smiling now, you start laughing. Yeah, make it yeah. funnier, make it brighter, yeah. make the sounds livelier, yeah, make it more funnier. Imagine there's a big dial in front of you, you turn that dial so it's louder and noisier <laughs> and funnier. And it becomes a brilliant, brilliant memory. It's an amazing memory, well, the best memory, the funniest memory, the happiest memory you can possibly remember. Yeah, just keep doing that, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep turning that dial, yeah? Now, yeah. remember that, now do this. Oh, you know what? been a really tough day oh, put your head down and you know i just really i don't know if what i can handle anymore and i just feel really really crap yeah this okay, is come this, up this is hard to do because i'm like but you see the difference <laughs> what happened yeah we we decided it, it... to think of something happy and then to just we didn't mm -hmm. i didn't even say think about anything sad did i i didn't think i didn't say no. anything i just said put your body down like this and automatically your body knows that if you do that, it's, it's the sad position, it's the depressed position. So this is what I mean when I say that we can make ourselves be happy. We can choose to be happy. You don't need anyone else to make you feel good. Yeah? Okay, yes, there are things that someone else could do with you that make you feel good, yeah? But to be happy, to smile, to have, you know, that joie de vivre, that joy for living, comes from inside you don't need another person to do that for you yeah and as soon as you realize that the sooner you can then make the decision that you're thinking about making and that's that's interesting in the fact of power poses or how in the same mindset of i, I grabbed a pen just for this example of if you go like this and put the pen behind between your teeth it will make you smile, whether you like it or not. <laughs> There's nothing, that's what it will do. And when you do these power poses, yes, they won't always work because we have a lot to work through. Yet a lot of times it will help. And that, that definitely does lead me to my next question of, and to your point, you mentioned this earlier, especially in the UK. And I think it's, in the UK, from what I've seen, is mental health is definitely on the rise and getting addressed, and that's a worldwide change. And I know that it's a bit different than in the US because in the UK, it's not necessarily always cool to hug <laughs> and say, uh, and yes, uh, I've heard this many times when I was in the UK that uh, Americans say awesome way too much. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, so there's awesome a, yeah there's a big there's a lot of fakeness i'm not being rude here but it's like um have a nice day you, you go to a shop and you get served and the, the server the person behind the counter goes have a nice day and you look at them and you know they don't give a shit whether you have a nice day or not it's just something they've been trained to say why bother mm -hmm. yeah it's yes. just you know thank ha you bye you don't have a nice day and Awesome. Well, yeah, when your dad's just died, it's not awesome. Yeah, we can't be happy all the time. 
We can be happy most yeah. of the time, but if, if you've just been laid off, if a parent's just been diagnosed with some horrible illness, that's not the time to go, oh, I'm feeling really happy to, that's awesome. No, of course not. But that's the time to be sad and reflective and to be compassionate. Yeah. But unfortunately, some people kind of think you've got to have this like fake positivity. Mm -hmm. No, just, just be yourself. The best person you can be is you. Yeah. Don't try and be somebody else. Don't try and put on a fake persona. Yeah. If you're not feeling good, okay, you're not feeling good. If you've got a cold, you've got a cold. Yeah. If so, you just had some bad news and you just had some bad news, the, the difference is you don't have to fall into a rut of bad news and depression for the next 20 years. You say, okay, look, you know, I've been laid off and it's, I'm really pissed off. And I've got to pay bills. I've got this. I've got to tell the wife. And I've got all, all this other stuff to do. Deal with it. Make the decision and that you've got to deal with this situation and then change your life. How and... This is this is a big piece of something that I did want to talk to you about is with men's mental health, because I think that is from society so much harder to deal with than a lot of women, because women will have each other to talk to or uh, and also you know, a lot of times um, the newer generations feel much more comfortable going to therapy and there's a lot more access to therapy now with all of the digital therapies. How as, is that something that from a young age you always believed in and something your family embraced? Or is it something that you had to open yourself up to therapy and how did you do that? And what would you suggest to other men to do so as well? Okay. Um, this thanks had several parts to that question, Jen. First of all, there's still a huge stigma attached to, to guys talking about stuff. Yeah. Guys can talk about, you know, sport, politics, pretty girls and cars in public. Yeah. But if you just imagine, you know, there's a bunch of guys sitting around a table. You know, Hi, guys. How's it going? You know, oh, well, I've just been to see my therapist. And it was really, really tough. They're going to throw beer at you. Now, it's changing, it's starting to change, but there's still this huge thing about talking about mental illness. I've been through depression for a long, 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 long time, and I didn't get therapy, I didn't get help, because when I was a kid, first of all, I didn't know what it was. I just felt miserable and sad a lot of the time. I, I didn't kind of talk to anybody about it, because I was young and there was nobody to talk to. And as I got older... You know, I'm talking about late teens, early 20s and what have you. Still, I didn't recognize it what it was. I had nobody. I didn't have like a, a really close friend or a confidant I could sit down with. And go, you know what? I feel really crap all the time. There was nobody. There was no access to any kind of help for that thing. This, you know, what I, what I call depression now. And I tried to kill myself three times. First time when I was about oh, 14. Gosh. And then the next time was around about 1992, 1993, 93, two times, yeah? And because you get to a stage, I got to a stage where I just felt hopeless. I felt useless. I felt I couldn't do anything right. I felt out of my depth. And I would just spend days curled up on the sofa, essentially feeling sorry for myself. You know, like I just... 
didn't know what to do and how to change things. I went to see a doctor and they gave me antidepressants, which turned into a zombie, which made me, you know, even more lifeless. And so I gave those up. And that's what kind of led to me trying to take my life. And it was only events after, immediately after the suicide attempts that made me realize I didn't want to go there again. Yeah, because um, so I planned it all out. I was going to be alone in the house for about 12 hours because my girlfriend at the time was going to meet in the other side of town and wouldn't be back until really late. So I'd gathered up all the stuff, loads and loads of tablets and all kinds of things and really nice bottle of brandy. She left and I started scoffing all this stuff down my neck, you know, because I just had had enough. I wanted to end it. In the UK, thankfully, we don't have easy access to guns because if I did, I probably wouldn't be now, wouldn't be here now. So I'm going the old-fashioned way. Mm. And um, the next thing I know is that I'm being shaken and there's two ambulance guys there and I'm taken to the hospital and I spend the next 12 hours in the, the night time in a corridor on a trolley wailing like a, a wolf because they'd injected me with something and like this wave of agony. So it would be it would like a the tide comes in and there's like, wow, it's like a real wave of pain. Literally, I was howling like a wolf. And then it would die down again and it would come up again. And literally all night long, I was doing this. The next day, a specialist came to him to talk to me and said, look, Paul, you've done this thing. It's really serious, blah, 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 blah. Um, we don't want to section you. Now, section in the UK means basically being arrested for your own protection and then taken to a, a mental institution. And that puts you under the protection of the government, essentially. They then decide when to let you out. And it can, you know, has a negative effect on your, your record and your career and stuff like that, because you've got to declare it. Mm. So I thought, well, I didn't want to go down that route. They said, but what we can do is we can encourage you to come to this establishment and get help there. So I thought, okay, what the hell, let's go do that. So I got taken to this place, and oh, my God, it was like a, a, a nightmare movie. This place was full of people with lots and lots of serious issues. It, it was a, during a time when people were still allowed to smoke indoors. So you had to cut a hole in front of your face so you could see where you were going. There was that much smoke going on. Oh, geez. Yeah. And I, and I didn't know until a few hours later, this was also a place where lots of criminals from prison would come to as a bit of a holiday. They'd do a bit of self-harm and they'd get sent to this place. So I was sitting there in this chair in a corridor and this humongous guy comes up to me. I mean, the guy's massive. You know, he's been about 20 feet tall and 20 feet across, exaggerating slightly, but you get my idea, yeah? And he comes across and he goes, Hey, you're sitting in my fucking chair, mate. Move. Oh, jeez. I went, I'm really sorry, mate. I, I didn't realise it was your chair. And I got up and I moved straight away, thinking that was the end of it. So I moved to another chair. Hey. I just fucking told you, you're sitting in my chair. If you don't move now, I'm going to pull your fucking head off. This happened about three or four chairs. Yeah? And so I said, I'm really, really sorry, mate. Can you tell me which one of these chairs isn't yours, yours so I can sit down? And he pointed to like the far end of the corridor and said, I could go and sit in one of those. So I did. I was really scared because this guy was massive. And he, he could have got like one hand and pulled my head off in one go. And I'm thinking, I don't want to be here one more second than absolutely necessary. 
So by this time, the nurse and the doctor, like it's only two of them, it's like 40 or 50 patients. They're completely overwhelmed and overworked. They're going around with the nighttime doses of drugs. We all fall asleep. Next morning, I wake up and I grab the doctor and I go, look, I can't stay here. So you've got to stay here at least a week. I said, no, look, there is no way on this planet that I'm ever going to try anything like again because I do not want, I told him what had happened yet. And I do not want to be here. It's, I'm asthmatic and it's making my lungs hurt. I can't breathe. I'm frightened out of my wits. You know, I just not going to stay here one minute. He says, okay, well, look, talk to me. So we had a conversation and I convinced him because I knew it was true that I would never, ever going to try and take my life again because I didn't want to end up back in that place. And from that moment forward, he let me out. Somebody came to pick me up and take me home. And I never tried again. And from that moment onwards, I just looked at different ways of doing things to make sure that my depression didn't come back in. And the way I deal with it now is, uh, just grab this paper. Forget that it's back to front, but you see that, where is it? You see that period there? Yeah. That little dot here? That's how I see my depression, as a tiny little dot on a, on a page of writing. And... I monitor it so if that page starts to expand, I've got lots of things I can do now to make sure that it doesn't expand. Because you remember the cartoons where the hero's running along and they're being chased by the bad guy. The hero reaches into the pocket and throws a black hole onto the floor. And then the, the bad guy comes along, falls into the hole, and then they pick up the hole and put it in the pocket and keep moving forward. That's how my depression was to me. It was like a black hole. And I'd get sucked down into it, like getting sucked down into quicksand until I was covered and I couldn't see any light. And that's when I'd end up on the sofa and with all these bad, bad, dark thoughts. And so now I see it as a, a dot on a piece of paper and I've got all these things that I do to make sure that if I see it moving, I can take action. And that could be anything you like, going for a walk, phoning a friend, watching a funny movie, thinking about you know mem happy memories, the whole list of things that I do. And that's, so I say to myself, I don't have depression now. I do not label myself as a depressed person. Yeah, I've had it, but I've dealt with it now. And all I do is like, if you've got um, a, a one of these that need monitoring, I just keep an eye on it. I just monitor it, just keep an eye on that dot. I don't need to physically look at it now because I know, I know the signs and the symptoms. And that's how I dealt with it because it, it was a very, very dark place. And that's why I'm talking to you today, Jen, and I've talked about this on other podcasts, because the more people like me can talk about it, can laugh about it, and see how ridiculous certain mm -hmm. situations were, it makes it easier for other people to talk about it. And then the more people talk about it, the stigma gets reduced. There is no stigma mm -hmm. to breaking your leg and being in a plaster, in a, in a plaster cast. People can see it, people can understand it. Mm -hmm. The challenge with mental illnesses is that People can't see it, yeah? And unless mm -hmm. you have a label across your head, hello, I am a depressed <laughs> person. <laughs> yeah. People can't figure it out. So the more we talk about it, the more we bring it out into the open, the easier it becomes for other people to talk about it, other people to go, you know what, I could do with some help. And that's the most important thing. It's about people recognizing that things aren't quite right, that they can reach out and ask for help, especially guys, because guys are taught, from a very early age to be big and strong and tough and not to show weakness and to be all, you know, <laughs> no. 
And so it's a lot, you said earlier, Jen, it's a lot easier for women to talk about stuff than it is for guys. And that is still true. You get a group of guys together and they'll talk about anything but mental health and, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah, the more people talk about this stuff, the, the easier it gets for others to open up about it as well. And thank you for that, Paul. I, I can say I completely have related to you of being able to put it away. And for some people that really does work. And I also, it took me a very long time because I wanted to be that person that I could just be like, Oh, I'm over it. Okay. Bye. Like I can just monitor it. And it took me going through my brain surgery last year that all of the trauma that I had ever been through resurfaced because where the surgery was is where all my long-term memories are stored. Yeah. Not something they told me about before surgery. It was something that popped out afterwards. And I had to go to a psychiatrist and I'm still in therapy. And one of the hardest things for me to accept was I am bipolar type two. I have depression and anxiety. I am ADHD and medications. Now that I know which ones to take really help stabilize me. Mm. I hate it. I don't like, it's something that I'm grasping with because even with my medications, I will, I still have the opportunity to have a downfall, to have a very depressed moment or days, especially with being bipolar type two, there's a big difference between type one and type two. Type one is for anyone listening that doesn't know, um, and this is not a medical definition, this is Jen's understanding of it, <laughs> is uh, bipolar type one is where when you have a manic episode, it is more grandiose, like I'm the king of the world, or I can do anything possible. I can stay up for days or weeks on end. And with bipolar type two, it's more of like a, it's still a manic, it still has manic episodes, but it's just more of, I'm more productive. I'm more talkative. I have more confidence. It's not as big of a difference, but both bipolar one and bipolar two both have the same depression. They both have the same downs. And that took me a very, very long time to learn that that's why I would be randomly outgoing one minute. And then the next minute I thought the world was going to end. Mm. And it took me a lot to really, really deal with that internally and let go of the stigma myself because I do, I have a, I have a pill bottle that I have to fill up once a week and it has like, you know, five or six pills in there because of other medical conditions too. And I know for myself that I am a lot more stable because of my medication. And for other people, not in a million years, like medication is not for them. It does not work with their brain chemistry. And that I, I so appreciate that you shared that because sometimes it is, you know, for a certain person, it's making that choice. It is a conscious decision of walking out and never putting yourself back in that situation and working on yourself in one aspect. And another one you said of asking for help and going to therapy. And then for myself, it was a, uh, you know, I had to go see a psychiatrist and, you know, then therapy and dealing with all of it. And none of them are wrong. They're just all different. And we have those options now. 
Yeah, one thing that really pisses me off is how people knock um, traditional medicine and big pharma and all of this because they say, oh, medication is unnecessary, it's all a rip-off. It's ridiculous. I've got a friend who has two kids who are autistic. They have a regimen of medication which they must take every day, which allows them to behave, I'm going to use the word normal, in that sense, because otherwise they just really, they, they, the world cannot cope with them when they're not on medication. They're just completely mm. extreme, you know, behavior-wise and everything. So the medication helps them. Your medication helps you, yeah? Now, okay, some medications don't work for other people. That's just the way it is. I still have days when I can feel the darkness coming. Like I said to you, that dot starts to mm. get bigger. But it's it's like a, the I don't like the word trigger, but it's like a trigger that I recognise and I take action. Now the big thing is I've decided mm -hmm. to create this list of steps that I can take because I don't want to fall mm -hmm. down into that hole again. Yeah, mm -hmm. So it would be very easy for me to become a depressed person again if I allowed it to, because it's always there. Yeah, there are mm -hmm. always these thoughts, but I've trained myself to recognize that a thought's come in that I don't want, and so just let it go through. Like a, an endless train of different carriages. You know, you've got the dining car, the observation car, the sleeping car. I just let the thoughts go by. Now, sometimes a thought will come in, and it will kind of try and stick and become a feeling. Oh, you've had a bad day today, Paul, and things didn't work out, and oh, this has happened, and that has happened. And I can see it. I'm going, you know what? Thank you. I don't want to feel that way. And just I'll focus on something else. So it's it's about deciding what works for you. And, yeah, if you need to see a psychiatrist, if you need medication, and that helps you to get through life, then there's nothing wrong with that at all. There, there should be no stigma to any kind of treatment that helps us. Because if it helps, that's the only thing that matters. It helps us get through the mm -hmm. day. It helps us get through life. And we can still be happy and smile and laugh and joke. But, yeah, there's no, I don't have any issue with it at all. There are some cases where, for example, antidepressants globally don't have that um, massive an effect on lots and lots of people. Yeah, But they yes. do work really like well were... for some people. That's the important mm -hmm. thing. They might not work mm -hmm. for everyone, but they work really well for a small percentage of people, and that's the crucial thing. The people that need them should take them, not just dismiss them because they didn't work for me. Yeah? Mm -hmm. and that is so important because it's not only about, you know, not stigmatizing mental health. It's about not stigmatizing the treatment and the things people need to do to get well. And that is, you know, we need and to have this understanding, Absolutely. And that's something that I had to learn too and accept of myself of antidepressants. And I do want to say this uh, is antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication never worked for me until I started seeing a psychiatrist and accepted the fact that I'm bipolar type two and that I have to take a mood stabilizer to allow my antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication to work. There are also other medications that I have taken that make me way worse. And that's why so many people that take medications and that understand that they help is they are, they can be called a, um, a pill cocktail or a prescription cocktail or something along those lines. 
And it is because you have to find what works for you. And for some people, that's, as you were just saying, no medication. For others, it's a cocktail of medications. And I know almost for, I would say almost for all people, it's also learning steps to put into your tool belt to know, to learn more about yourself and find what helps you. Like you mentioned going for a walk or phoning a friend. For myself, it is, um, if I'm feeling a certain way, um, I've learned to go, okay, Jen, like we're going in a downward spiral. And if I have a downward spiral using art, has been something that really helps me. Even if it makes no sense what's going on the page, it really helps me get the feelings out so I'm not holding on to them. And as much as this is everything that we just mentioned is is very much focused to humankind, it's to reel it back to that original question of helping men also feel open to it and destigmatizing men asking for help is so, so, so important. And if you were to talk to your children or a friend or, you know, someone having something going on, how would you have that conversation with them, that, that person to know that it's okay to go ask for help? That person needs to be able to trust you. That person needs to be able to know that they can come and talk to you without any fear of being judged without any fear of you saying, ah, oh, just pull yourself together. That that person could be able to listen and then talk you through the situation. Because a lot of people still don't listen, don't understand, and don't appreciate. Like I mentioned earlier on, if I've got a broken leg, you can see I've got a broken leg. Mm -hmm. If I've got a mental health condition, unless there are external factors that demonstrate that yeah like i've got sort of like a facial tics or i do certain actions you're not going to know until i try to kill myself or i'm standing on the edge of a bridge kind of thing so the important thing is to find someone you trust and just go and talk to them and i would just if you can't talk to a member of your family go talk to a priest go and talk to um, you know, somebody from the Samaritans, the Samaritans are brilliant. I don't know if you have them in the, in the USA, but it's uh, an organization that, of volunteers that will take calls, take texts, take emails from people who are not feeling too good, mentally speaking, and they are really, really great. Yeah. Talk to your doctor, talk to your medical practitioner, talk, talk to someone you trust, talk to a, a good friend who you know will listen without judging you. And if the worst comes to the worst, just walk into a hospital and just say, you know what, I, I, I want to kill myself. I need some help, please. Or just go, I need some help. They will find mm -hmm. you someone to talk to. You might have to wait. You might have to come back. But they will start the ball rolling because you've walked in and said, I need help. Now, that's difficult to do. So ideally, you need to start, you know, talk to a friend. Or... If there's somebody online that you're, you're in contact with that you trust, just have a conversation with them. Find, the important thing is to find someone to talk to because talking helps. And this is for guys, a lot of guys, myself included, for the longest time, Jen, you're not going to believe this, I didn't think talking helped. 
So I was wow. very closed okay. off from the world. And I just didn't believe that talking resolved anything. But I now realize that talking helps enormously. It can also help you just see things a bit clearer because you're, you're talking it out. You're getting the thoughts that are in your head, which might be all kind of jumbled and messed up. And you're coming out and you're talking to someone. And that person is listening and understanding and not judging you. And then in your own mind, you kind of say, oh, my God, I've just said that. And I've just said that. And I've just said that. I need to get help. So it might just mm -hmm. be the fact that you have a conversation with someone that then stimulates you to realize, yeah, I need to go and talk to I need to go and get help. I need to go and see my doctor. I need to walk and talk, whatever it is. So find someone to talk to. Whatever it is you're going through, and it doesn't have to be depression. It could be maybe the, the relationship you're in isn't working and you can't talk to your partner. Mm -hmm. And you feel it really burnt up inside. Find someone to talk to. Someone who isn't going to give you advice, but someone who's just going to listen with a sympathetic ear. This is where therapy comes in, with where counsellors, counsellors are trained to, to listen and not to judge you. Yeah. And to kind of maybe guide you into taking the right steps yourself. But there are so there are so many resources today that are available. There's no reason not to reach out. You, I mean, and also just recognize uh, that we do have bad days. If I've mm -hmm. just got laid off and I've got debts, I'm going to feel pretty crappy. That's normal. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean to say you're depressed. It just means to say you're in a bad situation, in a difficult situation. Mm -hmm. You've got challenges. It doesn't mean you're, you're suffering from a mental illness. It just means you're in a bad place. So that, that's also important to recognize as well, that you might not necessarily be ill, just in a bad situation. But you can still mm -hmm. talk to people. You can still get this figured out. But it all starts with talking to someone and getting it clear in your own mind. A hundred percent. And and thank you for that, Paul. I I feel like we're starting to have these conversations. And even in my own relationship, I know that my partner really needs to work and talk through things. And I'm not necessarily the person to do it. Yes, I love mental health. and I, But in relationships, as you we were talking earlier, we still need to be our own individual selves. And we also a lot of times need help outside of our own relationships. And that's why I go to therapy because with all the shit I've gone through, um, there have been times that it can be very, very overwhelming for my partner. And I would say he's very courageous in the fact that he's listened to some of my past therapists and have been like, cool, this is how I help Jen through the situation when she has a breakdown, when she's going through this, because there are still a lot of things that trigger me and that may be the rest of my life. And because of that, and for everyone listening, any women going out there or identify as women or men or anything like leading by example does influence people to, or can influence people to also receive help. And that is something that, because I've always been so passionate about it, he's now open to doing too. And I, I am so in awe of his courage to do so because it does take a lot of courage to ask for help. And sometimes uh, I know that I have felt so vulnerable and really shitty asking for help. And I can only imagine that stigma for men 
And so please, please, please realize that that takes courage and you're very courageous for doing so. Oh, that word, Jen, vulnerability, a lot of people, a lot of guys especially, link being vulnerable with being weak. And as you've just described, it's completely and totally the opposite. It takes a lot of guts. It takes a lot of whatever you want to call it to actually say to someone, you know what? I'm having trouble. I'm in a difficult situation. And opening yourself up and being vulnerable is an incredibly, incredibly courageous thing to do. So please don't feel that you're being weak. You're being, you know, you've not been a big boy. You've not been a man by opening yourself up. That's garbage. Being a man is being able to open up and talk to someone and admit that things aren't working, that you've got something that needs help. Yes. And uh, give me just a second. My computer just started playing something in the background and I was like, what is that? That's why I was giving you such a confused look. I was like, I don't know what Paul just said. And something else is playing in I've the background. I've touched nothing. I've touched nothing. And and on that note, Paul, I, I so appreciate for you coming on and talking today. What is something that you would want to leave our listeners? Like what's some words of encouragement that you can leave our listeners with? Okay, a few cliches. This situation is temporary. If you're going through something now, you can get it into a better situation, whether that's a relationship, whether that's with your health, it doesn't matter. You can improve the situation. But it all starts with making a decision. Yeah. Do not be a martyr. Do not feel that it's your job to stay in a situation that you don't want to be in. Like in a job that you don't like. If it's a job that you hate, okay, I get it. If there's no other jobs around for a thousand miles, you need that job to pay your bills, and I get it. Yeah, don't quit until you can find something else. But if you're in a situation where you can change your job or you can work for yourself or you can start a little side hustle, then then do it. Because <laughs> we are only here once. This is not a seven-day trial. Life is not a buy one, get one free. Not life, life isn't like a, a discount or a try before you buy. This is it. This is all we have. This 80 years plus or minus a little bit. That's all we've got. And I wrote mm -hmm. a post today about the fact that you might think you have time, but we don't. I've, and I mentioned, uh, we lost a child at 20 weeks. Uh, a neighbor mm. of mine died at the age of 18. A very good friend of mine and a work colleague uh, died suddenly uh, with a, a brain aneurysm at 33. And I've lost count of the number of people between 33 and 50 that have died of various illnesses and accidents. We just don't know how long any of us have on this earth. So mm -hmm. don't waste your life doing stuff you don't want to do. Don't waste your life being places you don't want to be because you just never know how long any of us got. Now, that's not morbid. That's a positive outlook. Don't think that you can do it tomorrow or next week or next year. Yeah, Do it now. Make the decision mm -hmm. today and then start taking action. A hundred percent. And how do people find you? What is 
what, how, what's your social media? What is your podcast? Like, how do we make sure people can get in contact with you? Okay. Uh, well, I'm everywhere. The podcast is called a happy head podcast. Um, Paul Wilson coaching on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. I've also started a TikTok account. Uh, Paul, I think that's Paul Wilson coaching as well. I just started TikTok too. And I'm like, yeah. this is crazy. I feel very old because I always refer to it as the TikTok. <laughs> that's interesting, Jim, because the thing is that the biggest market that's expanding on TikTok right now are women from the age of 35 to 45. And that's kind of the ideal range of my clients in the early 40s to mid to the late 40s. So if they're on there, then I need to be where they are. And so I just started a couple of days ago kind of, you know, messing around with it, learning the ropes. So, yeah, I'm, I'm everywhere. I will definitely follow you on TikTok. I am very excited for that. And thank you again so much for being on the podcast. We appreciate you listening to the episode. Please like, follow, and share on our social media at shit to talk about. That is shit the number two talk about. Stay tuned on Wednesdays and Fridays for new episodes. This episode was made possible by production manager Trom Nguyen, business manager Bill Powell, and your host Jeff.